one plus one equals two. That is not debatable, or at least it should not be. But ponder this equation. A while back, we held a debate on whether automation will so disrupt the future of work that we should all be getting a universal basic income. Then on another occasion, we had a completely separate debate on a separate topic, looking at the swing toward populism and authoritarianism in our politics with a debate called Western democracy is threatening suicide. Now, though, We want to see what happens when we add these two ideas together into one resolution because we think that one plus one could add up to something surprisingly insightful and have the makings of a debate. So let's have it. Yes or no to this statement. Automation will crash democracy. I'm John Donvan, and I stand between two teams of two experts in this topic who will argue for and against the motion. As always, our debate will go in three rounds, and then our audience here at the K Playhouse at Hunter College in New York City will choose the winner. And as always, if all goes well, civil discourse will also be a winner. Our resolution is this. Automation will crash democracy. Let's meet first the team arguing for the motion. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Ian Bremmer. Ian, welcome back to Intelligence Squared. You are the president and founder of Eurasia Group. That's a leading global political risk research and consulting firm. You are also, very recently, a best-selling author. Congratulations on that. Your most recent book, released just last month, is entitled Us Versus Them, The Failure of Globalism. You are also president of G-Zero Media, and that produces a video series called Puppet Regime. It features puppet versions of you, Donald Trump, and Vladimir Putin, and Kim Jong-un, and so on and so forth. So bringing this back to our debate tonight, are the puppets coming for our jobs? Yes, the puppets thus far are actually creating slightly more jobs. They each require at least one hand. Uh, (laughs) Okay, thank you, Ian Bremer. And you have, as your partner, Yasha Munk. Yasha, to you, I also say welcome back to Intelligence Squared. You're a lecturer on government at Harvard. You're a senior fellow at New America, director of the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change. Your most recent book is The People Versus Democracy, Why Our Freedom is in Danger and How to Save It. It came out last March. Last year, uh, the Chronicle of Higher Education published an article whose title was Can Yasha Munk Save Liberal Democracy? Can you? God, no, not single-handedly, for sure. Um, In in the book, I show why populism is a real danger and why it has these long-term serious drivers from income stagnation to a more multi-ethnic society. But I do think that together we can actually stand up for liberal democracy. Okay, a note of optimism from the side arguing for the motion. Again, ladies and gentlemen, the side arguing for the motion. And now let's meet the team arguing against the motion that automation will crash democracy. Please first welcome, again, back to Intelligence Squared, Andrew Keane. Hi, Andrew. You are an internet entrepreneur, the author of four books, including How to Fix the Future, which came out in February, and you are host of Keen On Show. That's the popular TechCrunch chat show where you interview prominent scholars and leaders in tech, entrepreneurs and the like. What has been your favorite interview in your program so far? I think it was when I interviewed uh, Emmanuel Macron just before he was running for president of France, and he had just grown a beard, so he looked very cute. (laughs) He looks cute, did you say? Very cute. (laughs) Okay, thanks very much, Andrew Keane. Your partner, and I want to welcome for the first time to Intelligence Squared, please welcome Alina Pelyakova. Alina, it is great to have you here. You're a fellow at the Brookings Institution, a professor of European Studies at Johns Hopkins, also author of The Dark Side of European Integration. That's about the rise of far-right political parties in Western and Eastern Europe. You have a PhD in sociology from Berkeley. And earlier in your career, you expected to stay in academia as a professor. What inspired you instead to work in policy? Well, I really quickly realized that with all the instability and upheavals in the world, especially with the democratic resurgence that we saw in Ukraine in 2013, I didn't want to be an armchair intellectual anymore, and I wanted to do something about it. You had to get out there, huh? Sounds like. Okay. The team arguing against the motion. Thank you. And again, that motion is automation will crash democracy. We go in three rounds. We begin now with round one. Those will be opening statements by each debater in turn. And speaking first for the motion, automation will crash democracy. President of Eurasia Group and author of Us Versus Them, The Failure of Globalism. Ladies and gentlemen, Ian Bremmer. These are profoundly troubled times. 
the United States, and not just the United States, but almost all of the advanced industrial democracies in the world today are more divided than we have ever experienced in our lifetimes. About Brexit, Trump, about the elections we've seen in Hungary and Turkey and Italy, and even in France and Germany. One in six Americans today say that they would prefer strong military rule to a democracy. They think the system is rigged against them. China. For the last 30 years, something that the West has truly believed is that as China got wealthier, as they became a middle-income country, they would need to politically reform or they would fail. That's wrong. They are now a middle-income country. They have not politically reformed. Xi Jinping has recently announced himself effectively as president for life. State-owned enterprise and state capitalism is stronger than it was before. They are building an alternative model to liberal democracies. Automation is truly problematic for two reasons. The first, back in the 1960s, Milton Friedman went to China, and he saw a big canal being built with thousands and thousands of Chinese workers, and they were all using shovels. They didn't have any heavy machinery, and he couldn't understand why. He asked the Chinese handler, where are all of the cranes and the bulldozers? He said, you don't understand. We do that because we want these people to all have jobs. That's the intention. Friedman said, I've got a great idea. Instead of using bulldozers, why don't you give them spoons? And see, then you could hire a lot more of them. We all laugh because we say, well, of course, silly communists. The capitalists know how to build things. We know how to grow. Turn to 2018, when instead of globalization, we have automation where so many more jobs are being displaced completely. And suddenly you realize that Chinese have the one political system in the world that's actually oriented towards ensuring the hiring of inefficient labor. In the United States, we right now have lower unemployment than at any point in 2000. 3.9%. It feels awesome. And yet wages have been flat for the last 40 years. What's it going to feel like in the United States when we hit a recession? 25 years ago, this is a group that probably reads The New Yorker. I get that sense, right? <laughs> You're giving us an evening at IQ Squared. You could be doing something else. You read The New Yorker, right? You remember, you remember this cartoon that had a dog on a computer? He said, you know, on the internet, no one knows if you're a dog. It was beautiful. It was the zeitgeist of the internet. They could learn everything. It was the communications revolution. It's what got us the Arab Spring. People with access to information learned that their governments were corrupt. They didn't want to take it anymore. They communicated with each other. Off they go. It promoted liberal democracy. Now, today, if you are on the internet and you're a dog, we know what kind of a dog you are. We know what other dogs you're into. We know where you're doing your business, right? We know all of those things. It's the data revolution. It doesn't empower individuals. It's top-down. Automation-driven and AI-driven algorithms are dividing liberal democracies. They're ripping apart the fabric of society. We live in something close to an information dystopia. We get our information filtered through the world's largest advertising company. What I'm saying is that automation, unfortunately, is undermining liberal democracy, that automation will crash democracy. Thank you, Ian Bremmer. And that is our resolution, Automation Will Crash Democracy. And here to make his opening statement against that resolution, Andrew Keene, internet entrepreneur and author of How to Fix the Future. Ladies and gentlemen, Andrew Keene. I read Ian's book, bestseller. Congratulations, Ian. You didn't mention mine was a bestseller, John. Andrew Keene is the author of a New York Times bestseller. (laughs) Thank you. Ian was very spirited, as always. We all know him as a television personality, very passionate. But I read his book, and there's some sentence I found in his book which actually reveals what he really thinks. He said, in 2018, it's too early to know whether the tech revolution will kill more jobs than it creates. Now, I'm from Silicon Valley, and the reality of automation and AI is that I'm not allowed to swear on this show, but you know what I would say if I could. We have no idea of what's happening. AI is the big new thing in Silicon Valley. Every new tech company is basically an automation or AI company. Apple, Facebook, Google, they're all trying to reinvent themselves as AI companies, as artificial intelligence companies, building their products, their platforms, their services around 
machine learning. But nobody knows how this thing's going to work out. Nobody has any idea, as Ian correctly argues in his bestseller, Us Versus Them, that we have no idea in 2018 where we're at. Everyone has different positions. Bill Gates and Elon Musk argue that automation is so powerful, so inevitable, so all-consuming, that it will create machines with consciousness. They will be our final invention. They will enslave us. Others argue that we shouldn't concern ourselves at all, that AI is actually rather impractical, that we are exaggerating. To quote uh, the idea that we're living in these troubling times, of course, is a perpetual theme, a perpetual trope, readers of The New Yorkers. We pride ourselves on living in troubling times. That's what gives us our pleasure. And I'm afraid to tell you, we're not living in any more troubling times than we've ever lived in. We've always created technology that dramatically changes the world, and we've always coped as human beings. Ian was presenting us as somehow powerless in the face of automation and AI, powerless to shape our own world. What Ian is suggesting is that we don't have agency, and that is, of course, what computers don't have. This is a debate which suggests that automation inevitably will crash democracy, if it's if some sort of computer software program, that our, our societies will shut down because of AI. We've always had pessimistic intellectuals like Ian tell us we live in profoundly troubling times. In the middle of the 19th century, we had exactly the same kind of whiners telling us that industrialization would take away everything of value, undermine society, rural society, religion, masculinity, meaning, marriage, blah, blah, blah. The important thing to bear in mind about this debate is that automation and democracy are entirely different things. Democracy is what I define in my book, the bestseller, How to Fix the Future. Thank you, John. Andrew uh, Keene, I'm sorry, your time is up. Thank you. That's best-selling author Andrew Keene arguing against the motion automation will crash democracy. Coming up, is it so bad if workers are replaced by robots? This episode is brought to you by GSK. No two cancers are the same. That's why at GSK, our oncology scientists are working on personalized treatments. One way we design these new medicines is by harnessing a patient's own immune system to target and destroy tumors. And by creating new combinations of medicines that work better together, we hope to transform cancer treatment for patients in the future. A reminder of what's going on. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, fighting it out over this motion. Automation will crash democracy. You've heard the first two opening statements, and now on to the third. Debating for the motion, Yasha Munk, senior fellow at New America and author of The People versus Democracy, Why Our Freedom is in Danger and How to Save It. Ladies and gentlemen, Yasha Munk. I love listening to technologists, don't you? You always learn so much. You learn, for example, that nothing bad has ever happened since 1800. I'm glad to hear that. They also just have a wonderful way of having their cake and eating it too. Does automation crash democracy? Well, crash is forced to the ground. Many might try and fix it somehow. That's about what Andrew Keene is saying. Now, let me be clear here about the nature of automation we're talking about. Because the argument is always, oh, people worry, and they've always worried, and it's going to be the same as it is in the past. When you listen carefully to technologists, what they're saying is that we're facing a new kind of automation. That what we're going to get is the rise of a kind of general intelligence, a machine that can rival at least the human intelligence of an average person. And if that happens, if 50% of jobs really do go away, if most people can no longer find employment... Some of the people who have studied where democracy has been established around the world and where it has failed have come up with a very simple model. They've said democracy takes hold when the cost of tolerating democracy for the elites is lower than the cost of quashing democracy. What will automation do? It'll systematically increase the costs of tolerating democracy for elites and decrease the costs of quashing democracy. 
The biggest cost to elites of democracy is having to share some of their wealth through progressive taxation, through distribution, and so on. And the more inequality there is in a society, the more demand there is for redistribution. Well, as we have the rise of automation, as a few people who still have the skills that are really needed can command huge salaries, as a few owners of the means of production, of the robots, manage to get more and more of the gains of these technological developments, and as more and more people are out of the job, inequality in our society is going to skyrocket. Demands for redistribution are going to increase, and the cost of tolerating democracy will as well. We've only ever had democracy in the time period from the French Revolution until today when political leaders needed citizen armies, when they could rely on average citizens to stand up to defend the country against enemies abroad and to keep the peace at home. But you will no longer need that if you have general intelligence because the robots can do that job for you. They can be your security guards. You no longer need to keep the bulk of society happy. You no longer need a middle-class workforce. So once you get the incentives aligned in that way, why should we share more and more of our wealth? Why don't we just retreat to our nicely gated communities, guarded by robots? Now, I do think that if early enough we respond to all of this with sensible programs of economic redistribution, we can actually save democracy. My fear is that on the right of a political spectrum, people will just say, what we have to do to get more jobs is to slash corporate tax and get rid of regulation, and somehow the jobs are going to come back up. And what you might get on the left of a political spectrum is a bunch of promises about jobs guarantees coming up with a bunch of fake jobs which have actually been automated away. Our ability to respond to this fundamental transformation in the economy, if general intelligence does occur, is very limited. And that's why it's not foreordained but quite likely that automation on that scale would indeed crash democracy. Thank you, Yasser And that is our resolution. Automation will crash democracy. Our final debater in the opening round will speak against the motion. Alina Palyukova is fellow at the Brookings Institution and author of The Dark Side of European Integration. Ladies and gentlemen, Alina Palyukova. So I will give you this much. We are at the brink of the fourth industrial revolution. And yes, it's inevitable that some jobs currently performed by humans will be frankly better performed by machines. But what's not inevitable in any way, as Yasha says in his book, history is not linear. So the nightmare scenario where we have this deep inequality, the haves and have-nots, robots are our overlords and we just tend to them. But how do we avoid the nightmare? Because it is a possibility. If we resist that fear and we embrace technological change and we face it as a nation, as a people, as governments, as citizens, then a new future is indeed possible. And as Ian says in his book, and I quote, history of personal experience shows that people give their best when the best is required of them. And that is indeed true. Just as we have smartphones and smart homes, we need to think about how do we have smart democracies. Because democratic systems can be more dynamic and are by design more flexible and adaptable to rapid change. Authoritarian regimes are not. Think about Russia and China. These are regimes that suppress dissent, that censor free speech online. These are the actions of very nervous, anxious societies that are fearful of the coming change. Democracies are built on openness, plurality, resilience. And guess what? We have a huge comparative advantage here. We have the advantage that only in democracies can citizens mobilize, activate, and push their political leaders to get through the kinds of social policies. Look back at history. Beginning of the 20th century, the United States went through a huge technological upheaval. Right after that time, the United States became the top economic power, and we became a much more inclusive, universal society. So we have the handbook. New technology is actually making it a lot easier, not harder. Think about the Parkland students from Florida just recently. Look at what they were able to achieve in a matter of weeks. This would have taken years in the past. So smart democracies will be those democracies that can combine the mass economic efficiencies and benefits that automation will offer, inevitably, with economic security for its citizens. A post-automation society sounds pretty good. 
humans evolved to be complex thinking machines. We did not evolve to hammer the same widget a thousand times over and over again, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Machines can do that for, for me. I'm fine with that, right? We'll be liberated when we have machines doing these rote manual tasks for us. We will be able to actually fulfill our human potential and creativity. And it's not going to be about us versus them, as the title of Ian's book suggests. It's going to be us and them. It's about intelligence augmentation. So IA versus artificial intelligence being the enemy, or AI. You know, Andrew and I were not uh, naive. We're not looking at the world through these rose-colored glasses. Uh, we are just people who refuse to give in to fear-mongering when we don't actually know what the future holds. We refuse to give in to paranoia. And we can look at the past and see that we have dealt with similar challenges before and we can do it again. So refuse with us. Thank you. Thank you, Alina Palyakova. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate where our motion is automation will crash democracy. Now we move on to round two, and in round two, the debaters address one another directly, and they take questions from me and from you, our live audience here at Hunter College in New York City. The team arguing for the motion, automation will crash democracy, Ian Bremmer and Yasha Munk, have argued that these are profoundly troubled times that we live in, that if automation leads to the end of 50% of existing jobs, that will lead to an inequality that will crack democracy down the middle. They also point to China as a frightening example of a society which is succeeding with the technological changes while not embracing democracy at all. The team arguing against the motion, Andrew Keene and Alina Palyakova, take very strong issue with the idea that this time it's different. They have a basic optimism and faith in the resilience of American democracy as it exists now. And they talk about something they call smart democracy, more opportunity for individuals to give voice to their political power, in which we will be liberated by the robots from the kinds of monotonous, repetitive tasks that keep us from being fully human. And I want to start by taking that very positive view to the opposing side, to Ian Bremmer to start with. Your opponent's basically arguing there's great promise for democracy and the kinds of changes that come, that it, our democracy ability to be democratic agents, uh, each one of us, will get greater with technological change. Can you take on that question? I didn't hear that from them. Did, did I mischaracterize you? No, that was correct. Uh, what, what, I heard, okay. what I heard was that technology is going to create far more opportunities. And I agree with that. Lots of growth, efficient trade, cheaper products, except that a lot of people are left behind. What I did not hear is that as automation grows, not that there's a problem with technology, but no one's giving me any reason to believe that liberal democracies are going to be able to effectively respond politically to all of those people, the far more that will be left behind. And I, I said that we don't know if there are going to be more, as many jobs or if jobs will be destroyed by automation and AI. If we leave this many people behind over the last 40 years, when the changes come comparatively incrementally, do you think our political system is going to get better when the technologists on the other side say, we literally have no idea what's going to go ahead? We have far too many technologists that are prepared to tell us that the politics will be just fine. Historically, okay. that's how we get into wars. Alina Pellico. I mean, we did respond from a policy perspective at the turn of the century, during the great upheaval in the United States. The U.S. government was actually the first to introduce mass public education, and the United States is also the first government to lay a path for post-secondary education by establishing state universities. So we can do that again, but it will take good social policy. So you talked about these people to be left behind because they don't have the skills. There are already private-public initiatives that are happening between Facebook and LinkedIn, and Andrew can talk about that. He's from Silicon Valley. Retrain people, give them the kinds of digital skills they will need in this new digitized economy. Just like we did 100 years ago, we will do it again. Yasha Monk, are you persuaded? I'm just so touched and moved by the trust in our political system. I want to read whatever newspaper you're reading, because when I look at the news, I don't have that much trust in our Breitbart. ability to respond <laughs> rationally to changes in what's going on. The... I've, I've heard two main lines from the other side. We have a handbook for how to deal with all of this. No, we don't. Because the kind of automation that technologists are talking up in Silicon Valley is going to be profoundly different from what we've seen before. It's not just one particular kind of routinized activity 
being substituted by robots, and there's all kinds of other routinized activities that can still be done by humans. It is intelligent machines learning to adapt on the fly to all kinds of different tasks. And that puts us into a completely new situation. And the other argument that I keep hearing over and over again from the other side is, this time isn't any different from the past. Let's assume that that's true for the moment and think of all of the deep political upheaval that we've seen over the last 200 years as we've had moments of automation. Think of the Luddites. Think of the deep economic crisis of the late 1920s and the horrible wars that that led to. I don't think that this time isn't going to be different. I think it might well be different. But even if they're right, that it's going to be just the same. We will be in for a world of chaos in which China is stronger, in which authoritarian regimes are stronger, in which already our political systems are less functional. We just cannot assume that we're going to be able to deal with that in a rational way. Andrew Keane. Our friends on the other side keep on using this word profoundly, living in profoundly different times. I think they're profoundly wrong. Um, (laughs) Ian's point that we're living in profoundly troubling times, he kept on mentioning China and he kept on mentioning the collapse of democracy around the world in Turkey and Poland and Hungary and Russia. He's absolutely right about that. I might even use profoundly troubling in those senses. It's got nothing to do with automation. I haven't seen a lot of AI in Putin's Russia unless he's using it to undermine our system with bots. I haven't seen a lot of automation in Poland or Hungary or Turkey. So the problem with the crisis of democracy in the early part of the 21st century is is an atavistic longing for community, a fetishization of territory and blood, which has absolutely nothing to do with AI. And the China thing is a distraction as well, because China isn't a democracy. So whether or not China does well as a non-democracy has nothing to do with this issue of automation crashing democracy. I just wrote a book. Seriously, I wrote a book about how we are indeed responding. Problem is our impatience. We expect there to be an app to fix the future. It takes time. To say that the rise of populism has nothing to do with the fact that incomes in, in the United States and other countries have stagnated for many decades is deeply naive. One of the reasons why people have turned back to nationalism, have turned back to these authoritarian forces, is that they no longer believe that our political system is working very well. And they're very willing to go with somebody like our current president who says, just trust me. I alone am going to fix it. All of this system is, is corrupt and inefficient. I really speak for the people. Give me a little bit more power and everything is going to turn out for the best. Let's say we're still in the phase when the apparatus of democracy, to the degree that it's a voting system, in addition to all the other aspects of liberal democracy, is still functioning. What do you see them doing? What would the presidential campaign be? What would those voters be doing? I want to challenge the notion that still functioning is a question of whether or not there's a revolution and creates an authoritarian regime. One of my favorite quotes, which I put in the book, is from William Gibson. The future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. Our history is littered with incidents of people not being necessary, not being empowered, and as a consequence being left behind in functioning democracies. Okay, let's go to some audience questions. My name is Layla. Um, you all have said that in Europe, Margaret Vestager is fighting Google and Facebook and all of these things. Do you think that the U- it's actually a problem within the U.S. and not rather like all democracies that automation might crash? By the way, that's a model question. Thank you. Uh, I think it's interesting. In I think the one industrial democracy that is facing much less challenge is Japan. No immigration. Incredibly homogeneous. The society is also, because it's so homogeneous, much more supportive of the big institutions, the business CEOs, the media, and the liberal democratic party. It's kind of a single-party democracy. That sort of system I don't see evolving or existing in the United States or Europe in the course of the next 20 or 30 years. The sclerosis is far too entrenched. I actually think Japan is the exception that proves the rule as opposed to the model that we should all aspire to. The other side has a chance to respond I would, at any time. I would just Andrew say on, on this, uh, uh, Ian has written off Europe. I think that's a big mistake. I think the real innovation now, and we all fetishize uh, innovation here, the real innovation when it comes to managing this technological revolution is coming from Europe. It's coming on their introduction of the General Data Protection Regulation, which protects our privacy. It's coming with the challenge to monopolies. 
It's coming with forcing these big tech platforms to be accountable. It will eventually arrive in America. You know, there's a famous Churchill quote about Americans. They always get it wrong, and eventually they get it right. And the same is true when it comes to tech. We take it for granted that America is the leader in innovation. It is in business terms, but it isn't in political terms. And America has much to learn from Europe. And I think it's very wrong to write Europe off. Right down front here. Hi, my name is Sam. I'm curious to hear more about the role of regulation, regulation of automation, thinking about Uber, self-driving cars. What role do you see the government playing? Um, and is that something that will continue to keep democracy thriving or shut down technology? Ian, you're nodding that you'd like to take the question. Sure, yeah. uh, because I think it's a very important question. I think that these technology companies, both in terms of the wealth that they drive as well as the transformational impact they have on society, are in a sense the most strategic companies that we have. And yet, by their nature, they're also the most resistant to regulation, not just because the government doesn't understand them and can't employ the people that would understand them as so fast-moving, but also the culture in Silicon Valley, which is much more libertarian, much more governments of no use, creating a new society, all of that. Where in China, their most important strategic companies are the ones that are not just regulated, right? They don't have rule of law. They're becoming natural monopolies. In the 80s and the 70s, the most important strategic companies in the U.S. were companies like Lockheed, Raytheon. Those companies were step-lock-toe with the United States government. They wouldn't sell to companies that weren't American allies. Today, the most important strategic companies for the U.S. are not just resistant to regulation, but they're ultimately undermining. And I think that's fundamentally problematic. For but, the but Ian, also, government. would regulation mitigate against the kinds of dangers that you and your partner are talking about? If we could effectively regulate the big tech companies in the United States, I would feel much better about the prospect of automation not crashing liberal democracy. I think the likelihood of that happening is effectively zero. Ian Bremmer arguing that regulation will not protect democracy. But what about a new social contract? More on that when our Intelligence Squared U.S. debate continues. When you give Intelligence Squared U.S. debates five stars on Apple Podcasts or Google Play, you help other people find our podcasts. So if you enjoy our debates, please rate and review us. Five stars. We like that. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. Two teams are fighting it out over this motion. Automation will crash democracy. Author Andrew Keene argued that regulation can help workers. There are new ways of thinking about the working class, which was once called a proletariat, the wage-laboring class that Marx talked about. You haven't talked about the changing nature of work. The jobs aren't going to go away, but we're not going to have full-time jobs. We're going to be doing many jobs simultaneously, and it becomes the role of companies and governments and cultures to look after this new working culture. So the social contract is the very kind of social contract that was architected in the middle to late part of the 19th century, not only by progressives, but indeed by people like Bismarck, who actually pioneered it, who was anything but an unrealistic revolutionary vision. And so, Alina, to the point of regulation, I'm guessing your answer is yes, regulation would be one tool to... Well, it's already happening, and again, it's happened in the past. Look, all technology is neutral, basically. It can be used for good, and it can be used for evil. And that's exactly what we've seen with Facebook, Twitter, and that's what we're seeing now with the automation uh, development that Yasha mentioned. Radio was used by Hitler, and it was used by FDR. So all of these things are used for good and for evil. Governments are absolutely critical to this. And it's already happening in Europe. The European Union has released an artificial intelligence strategy with huge investment to R&D and AI. And there are many, many, many more initiatives like this coming. And it just takes time. Okay, I want to pick up the pace now. For... <laughs> Dean, briefly to respond to what you heard there. I was just going to say, I certainly believe that technology is a megaphone and can be used for good or for bad, but we should not pretend that all technological systems are value neutral. We have to recognize that the political system that builds the technology, that facilitates technology, actually determines an awful lot over whether or not that tech is going to be problematic or is going to be additive to the society that we live in. Okay, another question. Is there anybody in the back I'm not seeing? 
Yes. Yeah, Dan Rodriguez. This uh, question is aimed at uh, Ian Bremer. The Chinese government is controlling the automation process in China, whereas we have individual entrepreneurs controlling the innovation process in the United States. It appears that you have a preference for government controlling the automation process. I absolutely do not have a preference for the Chinese system. Let's be very clear. But what you really want is a system where a democratic government is a fair arbiter, is an umpire, is a referee that actually allows the people to take advantage. That's what makes a social contract actually work. Because in China, the state captures corporations. All these big companies we're talking about doing all the automation, those are basically controlled by the state. In the United States, increasingly, corporations capture the state. We see that with the role of money and special interests. We see that with the way regulations are created. We see that with the swamp that is not being drained. The system that we're talking about that is a liberal democracy is already starting to crash and automation's going to let make me, it worse. Let me take that to our optimist about democracy. That was a very gloomy portrayal of the present that you just heard from your opponent. What about that, Alina Palyakova? Democracies do, just like business cycles, come in waves. And we've seen populist waves in the past. And I think it's far, far too early to say that because we elected President Trump, and yes, we did elect President Trump, the Russians did not elect President Trump, this signals some sort of complete dissemination of our democratic process. But he wasn't just talking about the Trump election. He's talking about a system of money in politics and corporate influence on government, the swamp taking place yeah, and taking root. Say, but he didn't say anything about automation. The, 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 this is not a debate about the crisis of democracy. Well, to a, degree, democracy. to a degree, your argument is that democracy is resilient and that's why the, the threats from the other side aren't working and they're challenging your assertion that democracy is so resilient. But it's still about automation. You're saying that automation is going to pose some fundamental challenges, but it's all right because our political system is going to deal with it. We're saying that our political system is already overwhelmed by some of its current challenges. When you look at how embattled our democracies already are, and when you look, frankly, at who currently is the president of the United States, we should have a healthy dose of skepticism about whether we're going to succeed in that. I feel good about Estonia. I think Estonia can probably handle more automation than the United States can. So, I really so not, not in any sense taking sides on so this. I just, I just think that there's a coherent argument being made on this side that's relevant to the resolution. And your response that it's not relevant is not relevant. So <laughs> I, I think you should... But, 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 but you, cannot, you cannot conflate the crisis in America with this broad debate about the relationship between automation and democracy. Those are two separate conversations. Alina, what do you think on that? There is a backlash coming and technology is enabling. Look at the Panama Papers, right? This massive leak of information that happened that truly undermined the corruption schemes of some authoritarian regimes, including Russia. And look at the uh, checks and balances in the United States that are currently happening, right? We do have an investigation going on in this country that's looking into into potential corrupt practices, uh, this looking into Russian interference. Um, so the checks and balances are indeed working. People are mobilizing at the local level. More and more women are running in the congressional elections this year. More and more people are mobilizing. So I don't know how you say that the, you know, we're not resilient, the checks and balances aren't working. They are working. Okay, so they, they have refuted your point, and I want to take on their reputation. We are more divided than we have ever been in my lifetime. That makes me feel that when the recession hits and when interest rates go up and when suddenly the huge tax benefit that everyone gets because we've got a great big giveaway suddenly gets squeezed and then the CEOs say we've got to lay off a bunch of people because we've been doing fine for a while now we're not, I don't see that resilience. That is the point at which I think that the Chinese, which will have the largest economy in the world at that point, have a very different system that is focused on ensuring that people get employment um, and is focused on ensuring there is civic nationalism controlled by the state, while in the United States, we're actually okay. doing I, it on the basis of our Can I just respond? Because he keeps on bringing up China, talking about this endless narrative of why China is going to be more successful there, maybe more advanced on AI. But let's look at the dark side of China. They're creating a, a digital Orwellianism, a truly big brother dystopia. That's our point, surely. No, it isn't. Because they're, they're not destroying democracy. The reality in China is that there will be new waves of unrest against a Chinese regime that has destroyed privacy, that rejects the very notions of individualism and autonomy. And, and you're dismissing that? You assume that Chinese people are happy because they might have an extra car? 
where their freedom is taken away. You're dismissing all that. You're suggesting that we only care about economic prosperity, and I think you're completely wrong. And, and Yasha Monk, Andrew Keane said in his opening statement that you were dismissing just individual agency, that people can't make choices, they can't act politically in their lives, they can't make demands. He's just making the case in China. He thinks that's what would happen. We have individual agency, but it's going to take a lot of agency to deal with those things. Of course, China has never been a democracy, but the ways in which these authoritarian regimes are using digital tools in order to precisely keep those legitimate expectations and hopes that, yes, most Chinese people also have down to control all of their citizens are frightful and they can absolutely be adopted by governments in our own countries as well. And that's got to a second point. He says, well, you guys are just pointing to Trump and everything else is fine. Look at the way in which this authoritarian populism is already rising across lots of different countries in the world, Turkey and in Russia, in which it is in danger of turning to dictatorship now in Poland and in Hungary. We've just seen a government in Italy, which is a far-right populist government. So the idea that this could not happen here, that tools to quash democracy through digital control are somehow irrelevant to our societies is puzzling to me. We have time for one more question. Um, To the extent that, uh, as consumers, companies are all competing to give us products and services that we want, are these companies not delivering automation because we, as democratic citizens, are demanding it and are responding to that? Take it, Ian. Yes, of course. It's just like when food companies weren't properly regulated. They gave us what we want, which was as much fat, as much salt, as much sweet as humanly possible. We became the most obese nation in the world and the most type 2 diabetes. If that's what you want for democracy, I consider that crashing it. Would the other side like to respond? Well, the food, the food example is a really good one. In the middle of the, out of the Industrial Revolution, you got exactly what Ian is talking about. But I don't remember, you know, when we go to our Whole Foods or high-quality food stores or restaurants around here that the food is that bad. When you have technology that takes advantage of us as consumers or citizens, we reshape it. We've done it with food, we've done it with transportation, we've done it with working conditions, and we will do it with automation. And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is automation will crash democracy. And now we move on to round three. Round three is comprised of brief closing statements by each debater in turn. Speaking first in support of the motion, Yasha Munk, senior fellow at New America and author of The People vs. Democracy, Why Our Freedom is in Danger and How to Save It. So there is a crucial point on which we're actually agreed on both sides of this debate. And that is that in principle there are things we can do in order to deal with automation. If we put in place all the right regulations, if we find the new model for our society and for how people are going to have a sense of self-worth and a sense of real agency as citizens, then we might actually be able to respond. Now, if you listen to the other side of the debate, the answers are pretty glib. They are, you know what, we've dealt with all of this before, we already have the handbook. The argument on our side of the debate is the opposite of that. It is to say that if technologists are right, we are facing machines and robots that have general intelligence and will displace many more human beings. We are saying that in order to deal with that, we actually have to reinvent in a fundamental way what our societies are going to look like, what our political model is going to look like, what our economy is going to look like. There's a famous line by the sociologist Barrington Moore who said, no bourgeois, no democracy. In societies in which you didn't develop a middle class, you didn't end up with functioning democratic systems. Automation is imperiling the middle class, and only by taking radical action will we be able to stop automation from crashing democracy. Thank you very much. Thank you, Yasha Mork. And that is our resolution. Automation will crash democracy. And here, making her closing statement against the motion, Alina Palyakova, fellow at the Brookings Institution and author of The Dark Side of European Integration. What automation technology is in complete opposition to is not democracy, but authoritarianism. I grew up in the Soviet Union, probably the most oppressive regime that ever existed. I can tell you that in the Soviet days, people were incredibly inventive how they used the very little technology they had to try to resist the authoritarian regime. And by the 1970s and 1980s, many Soviet citizens were actually huge believers in Western liberal democracy, despite authoritarianism. And that's why the Cold War ended at the end of the day. Now in Russia, there's an ongoing battle where the Kremlin is trying to reinstate a very similar repressive system. 
And we're seeing a battle between technology and authoritarianism play out today. Right now, the Russian government is trying to actively shut down a very popular messaging service called Telegram. The technology is pushing back because this messaging service has been used to uh, mobilize mass protests in Russia against the regime, despite great, great odds. And yes, it can be used by authoritarian regimes for evil or corrupt democratic regimes for evil. But at the end of the day, it is an absolutely critical tool for democratization of society. In fact, I will tell you that your argument that China is the exception to the rule, perhaps, well, there's a growing middle class in China. And history tells us the democratic revolutions happen in places where there's a large middle class. So I think in the very near term, next generation, we may have a democratic revolution in China as well. Thank you, Alina Polyakova. Our next speaker will make his closing statement in support of the motion, Ian Bremmer, president of Eurasia Group and author of Us Versus Them, The Failure of Globalism. There was one word that I noticed that Andrew used several times. It was fetishize. <laughs> now, yes, but I wasn't meaning that way. I, I find that that word is used very frequently by technologists because they're the ones coming up with a new religion that they are going to be able to create a new great society that we will all do so much better than because so much wealth is going to be generated. They call it a fourth industrial revolution because it's going to be even bigger and greater than the first, the second, the third industrial revolution. That's their book. Just like Mark Zuckerberg. Who knew it was going to be so divisive? He's <laughs> talking his book. The reality is they don't know. You know, there was an industrial revolution that didn't lead to more jobs, not for human beings, for horses. We used to have 10 times as many horses in the 19th century than in the 20th century. You didn't need them anymore because automation made them irrelevant. Now you've got one-tenth as many. It's very stable. They're used for food and for entertainment. I don't know about you guys, right? The food option is not great. <laughs> I don't think that's where we're going, but I am absolutely clear that I don't see why AI gets to the point where they're just about as smart as human beings. They can do just about as much, and then it stops. If it keeps going... There's no reason why what happened to horses doesn't start to happen with a whole bunch of people that we don't bother to educate properly, that we don't give the opportunity to become more than they are today, and then liberal democracy as a system has crashed. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ian Bremmer. The motion is automation will crash democracy, and here to make his closing statement against the motion, Andrew Keene, internet entrepreneur and author of the best-selling How to Fix the Future. Thank you. So I, I don't know what the horses have to do with it, Ian, but... Um... Yeah, you're right. I do use the word fetishize. Let me summarize with an ultimate fetishization, which is all of us as human beings. I suggested that this assembly itself is a manifestation of democracy. We think for ourselves. We're autonomous. I am fetishizing human beings, as we've always done, to prioritize what we care about. We will shape automation. You're voting on this notion of automation being this all-consuming thing that will crash democracy. Democracy being the human thing in itself, the thing that protects our individualism, our freedom. Ian has suggested that somehow the Chinese model will work because everyone wants to be rich and no one cares about freedom. I think the reverse is true. I think that the AI revolution actually might revitalize I'm not sure. There's nothing inevitable about this. We've never talked about perfect solutions. Human history is always messy. We break things and then we fix them, and the fixes themselves require fixes. But this idea that automation, our latest new, new thing from Silicon Valley, will crash democracy is wrong because it forgets about us. It forgets about human beings who, more than anything else, value their freedom, value their community, value passing on that community to their children. So I think automation will not crash democracy because of us human beings, and I urge you to vote for our side. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew Keen. And that concludes closing statements and the third round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I now have the final results. On the motion, automation will crash democracy. Before the debate and polling the live audience here at uh, Hunter College in New York City, 25% agreed that automation will crash democracy. 49% disagreed. 26% were undecided. 
Those are the first results. Again, it's the difference between the first results and the ones I'm about to announce that determines our winner. So the team arguing for the motion, their first vote was 25%. The second vote was 45%. They pulled up 20 percentage points. That is the number to beat. The team arguing against their motion, their first vote was 49%. Their second vote was 47%. They lost two percentage points. That means our live audience has given the debate to the other side. Our winners tonight, the team arguing in favor of the motion, automation will crash democracy. Thank you so much. I'm John Donvan. Thanks from Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate was held in front of a live audience at the K Playhouse Theater in New York City. Robert Rosencrantz is chairman. Clea Chang is chief operating officer. Leah Mathau is vice president of programming. Shay O'Mara is manager of editorial operations. Taylor Quimby, Aaron Dalton, and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer, and I'm John Donvan, your host. You can now stream all of our debates on demand on Apple TV and Roku devices with the IQ2US app. For more information or to purchase tickets to future events, visit iq2us.org. These debates are made possible by generous contributions from listeners like you and with support from David A. Coulter, Robert Epstein, Christopher W. Johnson Charitable Trust, Ilona Namath and Alan Quasha, Georgia Orstrom Jr. Foundation, Jerry Orstrom, Kelly Posner Gerstenhaber, the Rosencrantz Foundation, the Mortimer D. Sackler Foundation, Jennifer and Philippe Salendi, the Paul E. Singer Foundation, Edward Stern and Stephanie Rhine, and Emily and Antoine Van Achtmel. From Intelligence Squared U.S. and me, John Donvan, thanks to all of you. Hi, it's still John Donvan, but I have something special I want to talk with you about right now, and that is getting your support to help us keep going and to keep growing. I think you know that Intelligence Squared U.S. is a nonprofit, and we do depend enormously on support from listeners to keep us going. And I want to point out what we're giving back in return. Right now, IQ2 has been bringing you more timely debates than ever before and more exceptional talent to our stage. People like General David Petraeus, Deepak Chopra, Suki Kim, Mitchell Baker, Melissa Harris-Perry, Howard Dean, Jillian Tett, Nick Gillespie. I mean, that's a lot of people, a lot of names, a lot of talent. We've also, uh, if you don't know this, launched a cable television series that's called Up for Debate. We partner with Newsy, and that reaches more than 30 million homes every week. So if you've been paying attention this season, you know that we've been going from Bitcoin to North Korea to liberal values, debating topics that come directly from the news, making sure our listeners have access to high quality, intellectually driven debate on issues that matter most. Again, I want to remind you that this is a donation and all donations are tax deductible. And that when you donate to IQ2, you are helping us to keep bringing balanced and reasoned debate to listeners across the nation. We air on more than 220 public radio stations. We're on all of the leading podcast platforms. We have streaming apps. We're on cable TV. And your support makes all of that possible. Also, if you happen to live in New York or near New York and you donate to become a member of our Friends program, that gets you VIP tickets to our live debates and also access to our private members-only post-debate receptions. And those are pretty fun. So I would love it if you would give us that kind of support. And you can learn about how to do that at iq2us.org forward slash support us. And if you do, I personally would be enormously grateful. Thanks very much.